The title of my message today is Keep Calm and Pray. It's sort of playing off of a common poster that you see around here today. Um, how many of you have ever seen posters that look like this before? The original wording is, keep calm and carry on. And while I was putting together this PowerPoint, looking for the crown and everything, I was like, what does the crown mean? I hope I'm not saying anything offensive. Because this is, this is what's called a meme. It's been repeated over and over again until its original meaning and context have been lost. So I got onto Wikipedia and I looked it up. And it said that actually it comes from a propaganda poster during World War II in England that was never actually released. And what happened was they printed 15,000 of them in hopes of encouraging the people during the Blitz when London and the other major cities were under attack by the Germans. And they thought that they would encourage the people not to freak out as an invading army is basically hijacking their way of life. It's a way of saying, keep a stiff upper lip. Um, but the funny thing is that there were other posters printed as a series in this. The crown is a representation of the British crown, the government. Um, the other posters were considered so condescending when they came out. It said something like, your courage, your victory. Because of the way it was using your and the second person, the, the, the common people considered it condescending um, that these rich people in government were telling them to not be afraid, telling them to keep calm, um, that they just got, got mad about it and it became really controversial. So they never released this one. And it was forgotten by history until in 2008 uh, there was a person working at a bookstore with a bunch of used books, they opened up a shipment of used books, and they found this red poster that said, keep calm and carry on. And they liked it so much that they displayed it in, next to the register. And people would come into the bookstore, see it, and they liked it. And people started wanting copies of it, so they started selling copies of it. And before you know it, now it's on towels, now it's on computer, it's, now it's on computer backgrounds. Now it's everywhere with many variations. Now, now it's basically what's called a pop culture artifact, which means that it's everywhere. It's all over the world. Keep calm and carry on. Well, I can see why the original audience might have found it a little bit condescending, because you're there's bombs raining from the sky, and you're going to tell me to keep calm and carry on? So what I'm hoping today is that, as I say, keep calm and pray, I come at it from a position of being someone who also needs to keep calm and pray. I am an anxious person. I'll say that again, I am an anxious person. When I was in college, I had an interesting issue. When I was in Spain, I went to a festival called Fayas. Fayas is a lot of fun. It's where basically the whole, the, the whole city of Valencia goes nuts on explosives. They throw 
petardes. What's petardes? Firecrackers. Firecrackers all over the place, like they're not legal here in California. They every day in the square they have a they have a um, competition between fireworks companies to see who can make the biggest noise. It's called the Mastaita. And then at the very end of the festival, throughout the festival, they, they build and display these huge things called fayas that are made out of wood and paper mache, and they sort of make fun of different political figures, and um, sometimes they depict different parts of the Valencian way of life. And some of these can be really tall, like 150 feet tall. And on the last day of the festival, they blow them up and burn them and have a big party about it. I mean, the one in the square which I saw them, them burn it up, the fire was so hot from it that even though I was at least as far from it as these church doors are from me, I could still feel the heat on my face. That's how hot it burned. But anyway, at this festival, one of my classmates was throwing petardes, firecrackers, and threw one right next to my foot. And there was a ringing in my ear. And I felt like I would never hear the same way again. And I spent the rest of the year wondering if I was actually having trouble with Spanish language hearing or if I was having trouble with my actual hearing. This really freaked me out because I'm very auditory and I value my ears. So when I got back from Spain, I went to, in the same day, an audiologist, and a dentist. Why am I mentioning the dentist? I'll come to that. The audiologist said, your hearing is perfect. You can hear stuff that most people can't hear. Your hearing is exceptional. But I'm like, but what about the buzzing that I still get from that explosion? Oh, that just happens. But you should know that your hearing's fine. It's just that you're probably experiencing some difficulties with your Spanish language comprehension because you're so used to hearing so well in English. But they also said, I think that you have been grinding your teeth and making the muscles in your ears wind up. This happens when you're anxious. And when that happens, it causes some interference with how you can hear. This condition is called TMJ. It stands for something I can't pronounce. Someone up here knows it. Because <laughs> I'm sure someone in this, in this congregation has it. It wouldn't surprise me. And it's what happens when you get an so anxious that you grind your teeth, the muscles in your ears wind up, and then you can't hear well. I went to the dentist that afternoon, and they said, have you been really stressed out lately? I'm like, yes, how can you tell? They held up a mirror and showed me where I had worn down the canines, my front canines, by grinding them at night. I had worn them down from the point so that they were practically flat. And so they issued me a specially molded night guard so that I wouldn't keep grinding down my teeth at night from being so anxious. So I come to you at this topic not from a position of having arrived there already, but from being a work in progress at it. And that's what we all are, works in progress. So it says, keep calm and pray. 
used to have, I used to have a little magnet in my locker at school, which was where I would get most anxious. That my adopted youth parent gave to me. It's like our prayer parents here, except it was only for the youth, and they would give us little presents throughout the year and little notes of encouragement. And they they had noticed that I was anxious, and they gave me a little magnet to put in my locker that said, "Worry bad, prayer good." <laughs> a simple little reminder. Even when the magnet part of it fell off, I kept it because it was so valuable to me to have that reminder. Worry bad, prayer good. But the question is, what is it about prayer that helps us to stop worrying? What is it about prayer that gives us the ability to stop being so anxious? And if we are praying and not feeling any less anxious, how can we do it better so it actually works? These are the questions I want to explore today. My first point, my first point is that God answers prayer. If we don't believe this, there is no point in praying. By the way, this is the first point in your in your notes. I'll give you a moment to get your notes out and write this down. For every other point that I have in this sermon, I've listed a text, but I did not list a text for this one because there's too many to put on there. The Bible is full of answered prayers. God answered the prayers of more than one infertile couple who asked for a child. God answered, God answered the prayers of the prophet Elijah when the widow's son was lying dead in front of him. He prayed and that child came back to life. Jesus prayed, and miracles happened. There were so many people in the Bible who prayed, and miracles happened. The dead came back to life, closed wounds were opened, an axe head floated. So many miracles happened when people prayed. But because it's the Bible, and because it happened so long ago, in our modern minds we doubt, does God still work that way today? After all, have you ever heard of anyone being raised from the dead by prayer? Outside of the Bible? No. Did God stop working this way when the New Testament closed in around AD 70? I don't think he did. God still works miracles. I want to tell you about a man named George Mueller. How many of you have heard of him before? Okay, a handful of you. I've been telling this story ever since I couldn't sleep one night and stayed up all night and read his autobiography. Fascinating stuff. George Mueller was a man with a vision. He started out 
as kind of a lost role. He, he lived in wild living. He decided to study for the ministry not because he felt a call by God, but because, but because he felt like his, his father felt like it would give him a comfortable income. Because in those days, that was actually a comfortable profession. And so he went studying theology with no thought of God. He was a nominal Christian, a Christian in name, but not in action. Until he finally experienced a small group. Small groups are important, and I hope you join a life group next week. Until he, until he experienced a small group where there were actually people reading the Bible and praying as though God really answered. And that made an impression on him. And God him, over the course of months and years, stuff does not happen as instantly as it does in the stories. Um, he converted. He became a true follower of Jesus. And he believed in the power of prayer. So he was assigned to work as a missionary in England. He was actually German, I believe. And in England, he worked with a congregation, and there was this thing called pew rent. And this was how the men, where the minister's salary came from. And what pew rent was that you would actually pay for a better place in church. Can you imagine coming to church and, and um, paying for your seat? And so it meant that the rich got to sit closer to the front and the poor sat closer to the back. And it was very divided by class. And George Mueller was reading his Bible, and, it's, and there's a text there that says... Um, that says that you are not to give a better place to a wealthier person and not to show favoritism between one class or another. And so believing in the word of God and trusting in the power of prayer, he said, we're not going to do pew rent anymore. My salary is not going to come from the rental of pews anymore. Instead, I'm going to put a box in the back. I'm not going to ask for donations. But anyone who feels so moved can donate to my salary. And he lived this way for the rest of his life, just trusting that there would be enough in that box. And sometimes it was very close. And this guy wasn't single his whole life either. It's, it's very easy to say, well, it's all very well for a single guy to live off of donations like that. But he had a wife, and he had children. And he lived this way for the rest of his life. And sometimes it was so close that they were praying over a bare table and someone would bring some food in. But God took care of him. But that's not where it stops. He got into his head that they could do more good if they established schools. Not one school, he started with one school. But eventually there were four schools all supported by the power of prayer. And then he got into his head, well, if I really want to prove that God answers prayer, why don't I take the most unfortunate people in our society, orphans, and make a house for them that's funded entirely on the power of prayer? And he did. 
At first it was a modest house um, with only about a dozen or so orphans. But about five or ten years later, they were having some issues with the neighbor because the houses weren't designed for this many children and this sort of thing. So he, they bought the property out in the country, again, only with what people had given them that they had prayed for, until eventually there was a 700-bed orphan house, orphanage, all funded by the power of prayer. This was not 2,000 years ago. This was the mid-1800s. God still works miracles today, and he still answers prayer. He still answers prayer. I believe that if God could do that for George Mueller, and if he could do that for the characters of the Bible, he could do it for you and me. But there's a couple of stipulations to point out there. George Mueller was never a rich man. I do not want this to get confused with the prosperity gospel. God is not interested in you becoming rich. He is interested in you fulfilling your potential. God is interested in you having what you need. God is interested God is interested in letting you know that he cares. And that's the place from which he answers prayer. He's not a divine Santa Claus who gives whatever you want, but he will answer if the request is worthy and if prayed from a place of faith and if your sins are confessed before him. And that brings me to my second point. Can we talk about this? We don't trust God. One of the reasons so many prayers go unanswered is because we have a hard time trusting God or even trusting that he's there. It's very easy to go about in this culture practicing a form of Christianity without really being convinced that God is there for you. But if God is real, he will be there for you. Amen. This whole issue of trusting God came, came into effect during the fall. It says in Genesis 3, verse 8, Then the man and his wife, this is after Eve had, had taken the fruit and given it to her husband who was with her. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. God liked to be with his children. And usually Adam and Eve welcomed it. But this time, they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Sometimes we try to hide from God. We do this when we're ashamed, when we don't want to admit to him our need for him. Sometimes we hide from God. And it's a natural reaction when you've done something wrong to want to hide from him. To hide in the darkness and not come into the light. 
But last weekend I was preaching at El Monte out of the first out of the first chapter of First John, and it says there that if we walk in the light, not if we're sinless, but if we walk in the light, we will have fellowship with Him. God does not ask us to be perfect. He sees all of our flaws. He sees all of our sin. He sees every wrong thing we've done. But he does not look at us with anger. He looks at us with compassion. Adam and Eve hid because they had done a terrible thing. There had been a huge breach of trust there. But God coaxed them out into the light and offered them grace. The other thing we do sometimes is we're afraid of God. But the Lord God said, called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. How many of you have heard of that TV show, Naked and Afraid? It's, it's, I haven't seen this show, but what I've heard the premise is, is that you drop some contestants into the middle of the woods, naked, and they have to survive with nothing but the skin on their backs, literally. And it's so vulnerable to not have anything. It's so vulnerable to not have resources, to not have clothing, so vulnerable to have all of your faults seen. And that can make us very afraid because if we're really if we really get honest about ourselves, we all have things we wouldn't like other people to see. And we have things that we don't want God to see, and we're afraid that he might see them. One preacher preaching on this passage talked about how this was actually probably comical if it weren't so sad. Adam and Eve according to some, some research, were really tall, right? Really big people, like 12 feet tall. If they were trying to cover themselves with fig leaves, was it working? No. No. Just like their failed attempts to cover themselves, God sees us anyway. God sees everything about us. And you know what? He loves us anyway. He loves us anyway. He doesn't care what we've done. He loves us and he wants us to be with him. Sin is still sin and it still separates us from God. But what really separates us is not our sin, but our unwillingness to let him see it and deal with it. And that brings me to my last point. Sometimes we blame God. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. The first blaming in a relationship was after sin. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? 
The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. An interesting thing about Adam's little speech here is it says, the woman you put here with me. The woman you put here with me. Eve doesn't necessarily go there, but she says, the serpent who made the serpent. Many of us indirectly blame God for our problems. For a long time I was struggling with something. Still kind of am struggling with it. And for a while there I was going, God, why did you make me this way? Why did you make me this way? Couldn't you have made me another way so I wouldn't be suffering like this? I was blaming God for my problem. And there's a, what makes this so powerful is that there's actually a nugget of truth to it. God is our creator. God is the one by whom things happen or don't happen. He is responsible. But there's another element in that. Choice. It's not always our choices by which we suffer. Sometimes it's other people's. Sometimes it's Satan's choices. But God has allowed choice so that love can exist. And because of choice, we can't blame him for all of our problems. He's strong enough to take it. But we have to give credit where it's due and acknowledge that choice plays a role in the things we suffer, in the situations we see that we feel the need to pray for, in the things that make us nervous. There's an interesting school of therapy called Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, or CBT. And what it says is that it's not, it's not events that cause emotions but our thoughts about them. It's not the fact that, let's say my cat died. May it never be. Let's say my cat died, and I was really upset about that. Am I upset because the cat died, or because I'm thinking, my life will never be the same without this cat? That's a bad example, because grief is a natural reaction to things. But there's a healthy grief and an unhealthy grief. There's a grief where you remember the person or you remember the creature that was in your life and you mourn the loss of them, but you also start looking towards the future, how you're going to, how you're going to move on from that point. And this is true in all kinds of grief, whether it's grief for the loss of a loved one, for the loss of a pet, for the loss of a relationship, for the loss of a dream. It's healthy to grieve these things and to acknowledge that, that something was important to you and it caused you pain to see it go. But at some point, you have to let go and look towards the future and how you're going to get along without that, without the thing you're grieving. Then there's unhealthy grief, where you can't see past the pain where you can't see past what you're going through and you think you'll always feel that way. This is a very dangerous place to be. 
So circling back to how we blame God. God has already taken responsibility for the evil in this world. He took responsibility by sending his son to die on the cross. When Jesus died on that cross, he took on him all of our suffering. He took on him all of our pain, all of our grief, all of our sin. And he absorbed it. This is what really killed him. He experienced all of the consequences of all of our sins put together. And while that may not be much comfort when you're in the middle of your pain, Jesus' death on the cross paved a way so that we do not have to be in pain forever. So that we have something to look forward to in his soon return. So that we have something to look forward to in the fact that he will make us new and he will reunite families that have been separated. He will bring us peace of mind and there will be a time when there will be no more anxiety. But we can have, while that seems a long ways off now, we can have a taste of that now when we build a relationship with God through prayer. Philippians 4, verse 6 through 8 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. I used to kind of resent this verse because it says, do not be anxious about anything. Sometimes, sometimes, it seems like the situation calls for being anxious. I tell you, there was one point in college where I won't, I won't trouble you with the disturbing details because that still traumatizes me. But one of my friends who was somewhat mentally ill went totally off the, off the rocker and, and told me in graphic detail how she would kill me if she were to do it. I was anxious. The counseling center did a little in-service for all of us ministerial students and gave each of us screenings for anxiety disorder. Of course I scored off the charts. I thought someone was going to kill me. The only way I survived that was not through the, the counseling center labeling me with an anxiety disorder, though some people do need to seek help for that. It was through leaning on God. It was through listening to the words of the Brahms Requiem, which we were studying in choir at the time, which talks about, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. Blessed are they who mourn, who are sorrowful. And it talks about the hope of the second coming. And I had peace that even if my life ended, God would take care of me. The funny thing about prayer is that we may come to it with an agenda, but ultimately, if we're, if we're really focusing on God in prayer, he changes our agenda. What I didn't, I did not need assurance that I would live. I needed assurance that no matter what happened, I would be all right. And I was. 
Eventually, she got help through a long process I won't go into here. And I hear she's doing better today. So there's three kinds, there's three kinds of prayer that can really help us when we're anxious. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Through petition. Through petition. Ah. There we go. Through petition. How many of you are afraid to ask other people for favors? I know I am sometimes. I even have a hard time asking people I work with very closely for favors sometimes because I'm like, I don't want to trouble them. I have a hard time asking my parents for things because I don't want to trouble them. But God wants us to trouble him. God wants us to come to him as a good father and ask him for what we need. God wants us to offer up everything that's troubling us to him. I tell you, I can feel the difference when I actually take the time to do this in the morning versus when I don't. What I try to do every morning is pray for the appointments of the day. Pray for the activities of the day. Pray for, say, staff meeting. Pray. This morning I was praying for the sermon. I was praying for youth Sabbath school. I was praying for adventurers this afternoon. And I approached that with a whole lot more peace than if I had skipped it. We can't afford not to pray about certain things. Because there are anxieties that run much deeper than whether or not you'll make a fool of yourself during your sermon. There are anxieties about parenting. There are anxieties about where your income will come to feed your family for the future. There are anxieties about what you're going to do with your life if you're young. There are anxieties about so many things. And they will continue to be anxieties, pressing on us like thorns in our sides, until we actually take the time to unstick them from our sides and give them to God. And when we give them to God, there's nothing more we can do about it but trust Him. But trust Him. I love the Psalms. A lot of the Psalms are these pretty sweet things that they actually put into choirs that sing in floaty notes about them. But there are certain songs that you never hear in choral pieces because they say things like,
David is saying, I'm not going to take justice into my own hands. I'm going to leave it up to God to do for me. And that's what we can do with our troubles, with our sorrows, with our anxieties. Instead of carrying the weight of that ourselves, we can roll it off of us into the almighty hands. By prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, request your, present your requests to God. It says through thanksgiving. I've talked to you about thanksgiving before, so I won't, I won't uh, belabor the point. But thanksgiving is so important because it's how we build trust in God. We can pray for a million things and have God answer every prayer, and it will still feel like he's not there for us if we never take the time to thank him for it. When we take the time to thank God for what he has given us, it's actually more for our benefit than for his, though he likes to hear it. Because by thanking God for what he does for us, it focuses us to remember what he does. It forces us to recount how he has answered our prayers, to recount the good things he has done for us. And I tell you, to date, Gratitude is the best antidote I have ever seen for a sour, a sour mood. And I know about sour moods all too well. Gratitude lifts us out of our dark places because it forces us to focus on the light. Finally, there's this lovely text that I always heard come up in discussions of media and movies, but I think applies more generally to life. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. We are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, and that's what prayer is, is a mental exercise. We are to focus on God, and this is how we build relationship with Him. When you're in love, how many of you have ever been in love? Okay, dangerous question for the younger members of our audience who don't want to admit to their parents that they've been in love already. When you're in love, what are you always thinking about? The other, the other person. Yeah, yeah. And the more you want to think about that person, and your mind's just focused on them. Sometimes to your detriment. We were talking about Samson and Delilah and um, David and Bathsheba in youth Sabbath school today. When we build a relationship with God, we want to think about him. We want to train our minds to think about him and his wonderful works. When I was at a conference this week for women clergy in the Adventist church, and one of the workshops I went to was presented on how to enrich your spiritual life. 
And there was a woman there who was talking about her prayer life. And one of the things she does, she, she has two pictures on her wall. The woman at the well and um, Mary anointing Jesus' feet. And she has those pictures up to remind herself that that's the kind of relationship she wants with Jesus. And then she has a lamp on her desk that she does not turn on until she lifts up all of her appointments for the day in prayer. These are all, and that way, every time she's passing that lamp during the day, she's reminded of those prayers and maybe reminded to pray some more. We need reminders like this. Reminders to, as the theme of the conference was, look up. Look up. Sometimes all we can see is the immediate reality of the difficult cir circumstance, the difficult situation. But God calls us to look up and see him, to lift our minds up, to focus on him. And the beautiful thing about God is that he is big enough that that will not narrow your mind to do. Because God is involved in everything. When we're looking at these beautiful flowers, we can think of his creative hand in designing them. When we're having a difficult situation with a family member, we can remember that they're created in his image. When we are struggling and maybe even depressed, we can remember that Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, that he knew what we were going through. All we need to do is look up and remember to look up, to focus our minds on the one who is higher than I. Greater is he than he who is in the world. I want to encourage you when you are anxious, not to see it as an excuse to freak out, not see it as an excuse to panic, but to see it as an opportunity to come to your Creator and hand it over to Him. Let's pray. Dear Lord, You have given us the privilege of prayer. You have given us Your time and Your attention, even though You are the Almighty Creator of the universe. Lord, many of us are anxious about many things. I don't know all of the anxiety and all of the sorrows and all of the grief in this room, but you do. You know what sins need to be forgiven. You know what burdens need to be lifted. And I trust you that you will lift those burdens, you will comfort the afflicted, you will show your hand in a mighty way. You are good and we trust you. Thank you for being worthy of our trust. In Jesus' name, amen.